Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Today on the podcast, Alberta Energy Minister Sonia Savage on Trans Mountain Extension, the Federal Court of Appeal ruling, and what's going to happen to the $20 billion tech oil sands project. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, who's an infectious diseases specialist, speaking with us about the coronavirus developments. And Dr. Gordon Holden, the director of the China Institute at the University of Alberta, on whether or not China is being truthful about the coronavirus. Dr. Stephen Taylor from UBC is the author of The Psychology of Pandemics. And you'll hear Mike Smith from Vancouver Province and CKNW Radio with the British Columbia reaction to TMX and a look ahead to that tech mining proposal. There's talk about uh, the federal government putting together some sort of aid package. You'll love this in Alberta. Putting together some sort of aid package for Alberta, just in case. Trudeau says no to tech. An aid package from Justin Trudeau. That, that'd, be a big, that'd be a big hit in the province of Alberta, wouldn't it? No, I was going to ask you to send me your, uh, your thoughts, but maybe not. Um, so, the other story is the Federal Court of Appeal has dismissed Indigenous challenges or an Indigenous challenge of the Trans Mountain Pipeline Extension. And uh, we're going to talk about that, and uh, I'm going to ask her as well about the tech project with Sonia Savage. She's the energy minister for the province of Alberta, and the minister's joined us before. Minister Savage, thank you very much for taking the time today. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for having me back. I don't quite know where to start, but let's, uh, let's try this. The federal court has dismissed the indigenous challenge of TMX, hereditary chiefs, uh, arguing that um, there's no there's no right for the pipeline to cross uh, territory of Alberta, um, and the 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 premier or premier county, as we just heard, said, "Well, hold on, there are so many indigenous um, peoples who nations, first nations, who've signed onto this. What could you explain to us in in your thoughts and your words what uh, your thoughts are about that federal court decision and the reaction to it?" Well, sure. It's uh, it's uh, the last uh, court case in a long line of what I would call litigation warfare against the project. Um, it's been a hotbed of litigation since the application was first filed in 2013. Um, the whole project has gone through multiple legal challenges, and at every single turn, uh, the project has won. I mean, that litigation has included everything from people saying their charter Charter of Rights, Freedom to Association, and Right to Life, Liberty, and Security has been violated. There's been constitutional division of power cases. B.C. attempted to uh, uh, unconstitutionally regulate the flow of bitumen. There's been duty to consult cases, judicial review. It's been ridiculous. But this is has got to be, it is, and it has got to be the last of a very long line of, of litigation failures by project opponents. So it was a good it was a good day. Do you think that people in Canada, some people, many people, all people, I don't know, some people at the very least, uh, have maybe forgotten what Trans Mountain Extension is about and what it means? Because now we're talking about 
a massive upswing, uptick in the cost for the construction of TMX from the $4.7 billion the federal government paid uh, to over $12 billion now. My, my, my thoughts on that were if the federal government had stayed out of it, uh, we probably would get things done more quickly and more efficiently and, and, more, and less expensively with more consensus. But I don't want to put words in your mouth. Well, I guess, I mean, it's not surprising that the cost has gone up by that much. I mean, it's been delayed by years. The project was originally supposed to be in service in 2017. Now it's projected to be in service by the end of 2022. So that's a five-year delay um, that's been filled with uh, um, all those legal challenges. It's, uh, over that course of the delay, there's been material costs increased engineering costs, the burn rate of just keeping a project going um, is in, you know, $20, $30 million a month just to keep project uh, uh, workers, engineers, uh, project teams together. So that adds up into the billions of dollars. So uh, the cost overruns is, is not surprising. But I think, you know, there's another piece there that people people seem to forget, that it's not just the cost overrun of how much it's going to cost to build the project. But that delay in getting it done has cost Alberta's economy and Canada's economy billions of dollars because we don't have pipelines in service to move the oil that's being produced. And that's cost, cost an enormous uh, cost to jobs in, in Alberta and across the whole country. So um, it's time this just, just gets built. We've had enough of it. Well, we also had that uh, fiery train crash in Saskatchewan, which ought to remind people of the tragic circumstances that can happen when you overextend uh, the uh, the delivery of, well, let's say, you know, oil across Canada on rail lines. And I'm just thinking about Lac Magentuck when that took place in Quebec. I didn't live very far from there, and uh, it was absolutely horrendous. I mean, that's that's another reason when you look at what happened on the rail rails. Uh, if that happens in populated areas, we saw what happened in Lake Magantic. The tech frontier mine, um, what's your yeah. reaction to media reports? The Trudeau government is preparing an aid package for Alberta yeah. if they decide that they're going to refuse construction. Well, I guess I, I look at that and I think, like, what a stunning and incredibly dense thing for someone in the federal government to say. And I, I all I can say, it's just a gross misunderstanding of, of Alberta and of the Constitution. We don't want an aid package. Alberta doesn't want an aid package. We want the right to develop our resources. We own those those resources under the Constitution. And it wasn't that long ago that Peter Lougheed fought incredibly hard against the first Trudeau for uh, an amendment to the Constitution in Section 92A to make it extremely clear that we have the exclusive constitutional right to develop and manage those resources. So. Saying that we want and that they would give Alberta an aid package is severely underestimating the gravity of the issue and how dangerous it would be to national unity to stand in the way of uh, of any province's right of Alberta's right any province's right to develop our resources. When so it's just a dense thing to say. When that is said and it's reported on and it's not refuted. Um, does that sound to you like the Prime Minister is preparing to say no to tech? Well, I think uh, we have the right, the constitutional right, to develop and manage our resources. And if he's trying and thinking and planning to get in the way of that and is suggesting that an aid package would 
placate or, uh, you know, calm Albertans down. I wonder, like, I guess, do they realize that the economic benefit to uh, Alberta, to Alberta's economy, to the Alberta government and royalties and taxes is $55 billion over the lifetime of the project? Is that what they're thinking about when they are talking about an aid package? Um, like, I, I really don't think they understand the danger and the gravity of the situation that they're creating in suggesting that they're going to get in the way of that project. Premier Kenny and Premier Mo of Saskatchewan have both quoted in the last 36 hours as saying the relationship between the Trudeau government and the two provinces has improved. What do you say? Well, I certainly, I, I certainly enjoy a good and positive uh, relationship with uh, Natural Resources Minister Seamus O'Regan. Um, in fact, uh, he was out in Alberta back in December to uh, to oversee and announce the start of construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So there's certainly some within the government who we're working very closely with. I think some in there certainly understand the uh, hurt in Alberta, the jobs crisis it's created. I think that there's some that certainly understand that the situation we're in in Alberta right now is a direct result of federal government's interference in pipeline projects. I mean, uh, we, it, you look back over the last four years, four and a half years, they killed Northern Gateway. Energy East was uh, regulated out of existence. Um, there's been delays to every other pipeline, to KXL, to Line 3, to Trans Mountain. So we don't have enough capacity to move the product that's being produced, hence more rail, more is moving by rail, but also, it's, uh, it's impacted the price of, of oil. We're under curtailment in Alberta mm-hmm. because we can't move as much product as we can produce. And that has severe repercussions on not only the Alberta economy, but all of Canada. So there are certainly some within the, the government who recognize that and are reaching out and trying to, uh, to, to find solutions. But I can tell you that all of that work, all of that positive momentum and work would be undone in a flash of a second if they get in the way of tax. Minister, thank you for the time. Well, thank you for having me. Good talking to you. Minister Sonia Savage, the Alberta Energy Minister. Dr. Isaac Bogosh is a University of Toronto and Toronto General Hospital infectious diseases doctor. He uh, is also a scientist and he has many thoughts on public health and global health issues. And I love talking to him because he explains things to us in layman's terminology. Dr. Bogosh, thank you very much, because whenever I call you and I ask you to do an interview, you never say no. That's <laughs> very kind. It's very much appreciated, because not everyone is as approachable as you are. That's also very kind. I'm going to tell my wife. Please. <laughs> uh, on the proverbial 1 to 10 scale, uh, and as far as how concerned the average person should be about contracting coronavirus, where's the number? We have to timestamp every conversation. So as of today, if you're living in Canada, as of today, your risk of acquiring this infection in Canada is close to 0%. We have a country of 38 million people. I think we have about six cases here in Canada, across the second largest country in the world. Your chance of acquiring this infection in Canada, as of today, is close to 0%. Having said that, of course there's an ongoing epidemic in China, focused mostly in Hubei, but elsewhere in China as well. Of course, we're seeing cases exported 
elsewhere in the world, not just to East and Southeast Asia, but of course to Canada, United States, Europe, other places as well. So we have to stay focused. We have to pay attention. We have to keep up to date with this evolving epidemic. But as of today in Canada, our risk is about 0%. Can we trust the managers of this pandemic or is it a pandemic? Not yet. Yeah, it's a pan- not yet. No. Okay. Can we trust the managers of this global health emergency? And by the managers, I mean the World Health Organization, uh, the Chinese government, anyone who has a political position to, may I use the word protect? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to know. I mean, uh, on the one hand, I completely appreciate how there have been several different, uh, let's say, narratives coming out of China. And, you know, I think it's, it's hard to put a blanket statement over 1.4 billion people. But, uh, of course, on the one hand, we've heard of, you know, maybe them not letting in the WHO or the US CDC or other, other teams willing to really help get this under control. But on the other hand, I mean, there's been, you know, pretty good communication and, and coordination with you know, individuals and scientists and even like the, uh, the Wuhan Public Health Service and sometimes elements of the Chinese CDC has been, you know, sharing their data, sharing their information, sharing the sequence of the virus rapidly and in real time. So I think there's there's probably several different groups that are working, you know, in parallel. And some, I guess, are, are, are freely sharing information and maybe others uh, to, to a lesser degree. The World Health Organization has clearly taken this seriously. I mean, uh, and uh, and and. and really obviously wants to get this under control. The Chinese government, I mean, has really enacted one of the largest control initiatives ever in the history of humankind. I mean, there's about now, I think, up to 70 million people who have their transportation restricted, flights in and out, buses and trains in and out of these cities in Hubei province are, are, are eliminated. Even transportation within the country is is coming to a standstill, public gatherings are canceled. So, you know, I, it, it, it at least appears that they're, they're doing everything they can to get this under control. You know, the question is, could they have done this earlier? Should this have started earlier before it got out of control? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we have an answer to that question just yet, but there sort of seems to be ripples of information suggesting that this should have been started, you know, several weeks before it, it did to, to prevent where we yeah, are now. When we, when we see the kind of reaction that you just described out of China, that tends to alarm people as well. If China is taking that kind of significant and ex- arguably extreme measure to control any further um, outbreaks of the virus, do we really know what the uh, what the issue is? Let me just tag that with this question. There's a doctor question for you. Yeah. Does the 14 day incubation period, which is what we're told is, is required, does the 14 day incubation period always leave us behind the advancing any advancing curve of the coronavirus outbreaks? I think it's it's there's some really good data to suggest that the incubation period is going to be about five to six days in most people, and certainly not more than not more than 14 days. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's data from this outbreak to uh, to really help with that so you know if we if we conservatively say 14 days i think we're we're doing something right here and you know this strong arm of the chinese government and the public health infrastructure of china to really get this under control i mean i i i'm not going to put words in their mouth but i i certainly think that they appreciate how serious the situation is 
from a health standpoint, from an economic standpoint, from a political standpoint. I mean, this is these these epidemics are, are obviously uh, apart from the lives lost, and of course, this is terrible. There are lives lost, but apart from that, the the economic output and the ep- economic turmoil is measured in the billions and maybe even more. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of reasons that they would want to have this uh, shut down as fast as possible. And even if the virus, and again, it, people talk about the mortality rate, also known as the case fatality rate, you know, we don't have all the data available. Many believe this number will ultimate be, ultimately be less than 1%. It's currently at about 2%, but many, many people watching this closely think that this will go down when we start accounting for the more mild cases. Even if it is less than 1%, when you scale up the sheer number of people that are infected, that's still an absolute number of deaths that's that's high and 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 if we can avoid this by preventing infection and uh and preventing transmission in in and around china preventing exportation to places outside of china by all means we should do everything in our power to do so final question for you and i've asked you this before is the joker in the deck the virus's ability to mutate um you know the thing is viruses are always mutating and whenever the general public hears mutation people assume bad people hear mutation and they think about a movie they saw where there yep, was we do and, and and but what happens is most mutations are actually benign most mutations do absolutely nothing it just gradually changes um some mutations might make a virus m- more easily transmissible between people and there may have been some evidence of that happening during the sars epidemic but it doesn't appear that there's any evidence of this happening now and i've been prodding my and 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 really asking around my virology and genetics friends looking at some of the emerging data that where they've sequenced the virus genome uh and and and, you know it it doesn't appear that that's really a a major factor in this current epidemic okay well i thank you very much for the time as always and so for everyone listening to this program now the chances of contracting coronavirus the one that we're talking about the new one that's come out of china and the question about whether it, I shouldn't even say this, whether it originated in a bio-warfare lab and got out. There's all sorts of things circulating. The chances of getting it are virtually zero in Canada right now. Right? That's completely correct. That is completely correct. But, of course, if this continues to spread in China, right. if it's not able to, if they're not able to contain it in China, yeah. if there are growing chains of transmission in China and outside of China, we know that this will spread. And certainly, we still have to be prepared for the situation where this is not contained in China and there's more global spread of this infection. I don't think anyone on Earth can look you in the eye and tell you with a straight face that this will or will not be contained. I don't think we have enough information. We'll know probably in the next week or two how the uh, containment issues and control efforts in China are playing out. But as of today, it's very challenging to know if this will get under control in China or not. Of course, if it doesn't, you know, everything's off the table. We'll, right. we'll see many, many more cases of this if it's not contained in China because it will start to spread elsewhere, first through East and Southeast Asia, and then more globally, and we'll see many, many more cases. But we're not, I don't think anyone can confidently say that's going to happen just yet okay. uh, because, you know, we don't have data to support that just yet. Dr. Bogosh, thank you very much, as always, and, you know, we'll call you again. Happy to chat. Have a good one. Thank you. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases specialist, doctor from uh, University of Toronto and Toronto General Hospital. 
Professor Gordon Holden is director of the China Institute, University of Alberta. Also uh, led a Canadian delegation to China in November. Uh, Professor Holden, there's concern about uh, Dr. Li Wenliang, the Chinese doctor who tried to warn of the coronavirus initially and was shut down by the Chinese government, now dead from the virus. Does this speak to anything other than the unfortunate death of a doctor who attempted to sound a very critical alarm? Are you concerned about this? Well, I am. And here was an opportunity lost. Uh, If the local party apparatus and the um, censors, rather than shutting him down, rather than having him sign a self-criticism, if he'd been listened to, and China should have known from the 2003 SARS episode that um, not well-known virus. He thought perhaps it might have been the return of SARS. He wasn't certain. He didn't have the equipment, but just a a medical doctor sounding the alarm ought to have been enough to kick in at least the local um, hospitals and researchers to to check it out uh, rather than stomp it out as a rumor. Now, you do have to be careful about rumors, but they missed an opportunity to nip this in the bud. So you want to understand China better than most. You you deal with people who are in high positions in in government in China, and you were there in November. Do you think that China is being completely truthful with the rest of the world about what that country is facing and how this coronavirus broke out? Well, in your deduction, you asked two questions. One is China yes, I did, doing yeah. <laughs> everything they can. I think at this point, I'd say the answer is yes. Um, are they being completely truthful? I can't know that for certain, but I do fear that they're not being completely upfront about the spread within China, outside of Hubei province, or well outside of Wuhan, and the other cities in Hubei province. Part of it may be that there are so many young people who get a mild version of it and recover long before they, you'd have to test them for antibodies, long before they become the attention of the health authorities who are overwhelmed. But on the death toll, uh, I find the death toll a tad light. Um, It's in the 600, 800 range now. It goes up every day. Um, I wonder if they're not missing a lot of people. Not that hard to do in a country size of China, but that death toll is really important because the more accurate they can be about the number of cases and the death toll, then it gives the outside experts a better idea as to how lethal it is and helps them prepare. The, the question also then becomes at some point, and I think we've reached that point actually, whether for China this has become a political consideration more than a health concern. I'd say it's still primarily a health concern. I think most Chinese in China would agree with that. But it is also, as you suggest, a political problem. If you are President Xi, who's taken onto himself more power than any Chinese leader since Deng Xiaoping, if you take responsibility for everything by occupying every significant post, then you are responsible for everything that goes wrong, as well as the things that go right. And right now, something's going very wrong. And so there will be some political consequences. What that will be, I don't know, uh, but it is there is a political dimension, absolutely. So the question can become, are they more interested, I shouldn't say maybe more interested, but how interested are they, they being the apparatus, the government apparatus, in protecting uh, President Xi over taking care of what has to be taken care of with the, with the, with the virus outbreak? Well, I think they need to do both, and, and one supports the other. In other words, if they can wrestle this to the ground, it will help the standing of the party and Xi Jinping. So for those dual reasons, I'm not saying that's all they care about, but if they can do deal with the epidemic and at this point when it's already well spread and seem to be doing so effectively, that will help shore things out up. On the other hand, 
if they can't manage it, and given there's already been a lot of people, not just a lot of people ill, hundreds of millions of people's lives are disrupted. We had several people back in my office this last week who come back, not from Hubei province, but from other parts of China. Uh, they are basically saying things are shut down, people are working from home, all the universities are closed, these are, these are academics that came back, um, you can't go on the street, even in provinces that are far removed from Hubei, without wearing a face mask. Um, basically, Chinese economy, maybe not a standstill, but it's, it's idling largely. And those are big consequences economically, and the population is afraid. Yeah. In 30 seconds, that's all we have left. What's the answer you, what's the question you want an answer to? Well, I would like to have guaranteed access by outside experts to the Chinese experts so we can get a higher degree of confidence in how the Chinese are dealing with it and what the numbers are. And the World Health Organization, of course, saying they are now going to be sending a delegation to China. How much cooperation they're going to get, I guess we'll find out. Professor Holden, always good talking to you. Thank you for the time. Thank you so much, Dr. Gordon Holden from the University of Alberta. He's the director of the China Institute. I became aware, as many of us have, uh, of a new book called The Psychology of Pandemics, titled the psychology of pandemics, preparing for the next global outbreak of infectious disease. And the author is Dr. Stephen Taylor, professor and clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of British Columbia. And he's a highly respected uh, psychologist. And what I find, uh, Dr. Taylor, thank you for taking the time. And I I just find it uh, startling, amazing, choose the adjective, that your book came out, was published about three weeks before the world started to become aware of coronavirus. Well, Roy, it was kind of funny. I was trying to get the book finished before the next outbreak occurred because it was inevitable that there would be uh, a severe outbreak and possibly a pandemic coming within the next few years. I mean, virologists have been predicting it for several years now. And in the preface, you write, pandemic influenza is widely considered to be one of the leading public health threats facing the world today, where virologists predict that the next influenza pandemic could uh, arrive at any time in the coming years with potentially devastating consequences. As you see what's going on around you now, as you watch what's going around all, uh, on around all of us with this coronavirus, the level of interest, the uh, if you will, the level of concern and fear, is what you, and I'll ask you questions about this as we go through the interview, but is what you're seeing, what you predicted, felt, learned, uh, assumed was going to happen? Uh, yeah, it is. There's a, uh, a section in the last chapter of the book called A Portrait of the Next Pandemic, and it's unfolding along the lines of how it was predicted. And I simply predicted it from the research on previous pandemics, Although this is not a pandemic uh, currently, and I should never use the word "assumed" when I talk to someone like you, you don't assume you your your conclusions are are, are born on, on of research. You also wrote uh, remarkably. Public health agencies have devoted few resources for specifically dealing with the psychological factors that influence pandemic-related emotional reactions, i.e.g., fear, anxiety, distress, and behavioral problems. Speak to that, please. Is that is that a factor already? Is it growing? Where could it lead to? Um, in Canada, we've we've got widespread fears um, well ahead of the actual threat of infection. 
Um, I think there are currently eight cases of coronavirus in Canada, and yet a recent Angus Reid poll suggested that 7% of Canadians were very concerned about it. And 7% of Canadians equals 2.6 million people. So there is uh, quite a number of people out there very anxious about this coronavirus, and and this anxiety plays out in many ways. We've seen people um, buying masks and wearing masks, despite the fact that the health authorities are telling us, well, the, the masks aren't very effective, and they're not effective at all. In fact, there's some evidence that the masks can make you at more risk for acquiring the coronavirus. Yet people are, are clamouring for masks. We've seen a rise of xenophobia, discrimination against Chinese people by people who are frightened about becoming contaminated. Uh, according to this Angus Reid poll, something like 12% of Canadians are avoiding public places now for fear of contamination. And, and all this avoidance and mask wearing and so forth is, is unnecessary and excessive at this point. So the emotional reaction, the psychological reaction to what we know outpaces the actual impact of the virus. It's complicated. Uh, some people are becoming highly alarmed about it, but there, there is a, a group of people, a, a, a chunk of the population, who are reacting with um, an extreme under-concern, that they, they believe the media reports are overblown, they see themselves as being impervious to infection, um, and so forth. And they're the people that are unlikely to wash their hands. They're not likely to follow um, hygiene protocols. And in fact, it was interesting, there's another American survey out about the coronavirus, and they asked the, the sample of, of people from the United States, uh, if a vaccine was to become available, would you get vaccinated? And 48% said no. So... Uh, it's stunning. It's, 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 yeah, you're right, it's stunning that... The, We've got two extremes here. We've got a group of people who are extremely anxious and xenophobic, and then there's another group of people who see the whole thing as overblown, and they're not concerned at all. They're not going to get vaccinated, and they're the ones who are going to be spreading infection to other people. Is it a situation of what it was ever thus? You have a uh, you, you have a section where you write about notable pandemics, and you begin with the bubonic plague, 1346 right. to 1353 killed an estimated 50 million people worldwide. Last weekend, we spoke with Dr. Uh, Anne Herring, anthropologist from McMaster University, about the three waves of H1N1 in 1918 to 1920. As, mm-hmm. the, as, the, as, as the public attitude, the public mood, uh, the public uh, uh, psychological approach been the same in, in, in each pandemic, in each outbreak? And I, I ask this because our capability, our abilities to communicate with one another and to travel from place to place now are so vastly accelerated over anything yep. we experienced in the you know the usually talked about pandemic times. I know there have been other pandemics in the 50s and the 60s and so on, but yep. has everything... Is it a case of twas ever thus? Well... In some ways, the reactions we're seeing now are similar to what we saw in the 15th century, um, although in some ways they're different. The, the things that are similar in all of the pandemics that I've looked at, there's been a rise of xenophobia. In the, in the case of the bubonic plague, uh, Jewish people were targeted uh, because of the mistaken belief that they were carriers of infection. During the Spanish flu, it, it was, um, well, well, 
the Allies were at war, World War One, Germans were blamed for spreading the infection. So that, that xenophobia always arises by frightened people trying to make sense and trying to find someone to blame. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, there there are some differences, as as you allude to. Um, Transport is a lot quicker these days, so it's easier for infection to spread throughout the globe. On the other hand, medical care is a lot better these days. If you look back at the Spanish flu, many of the people didn't die from influenza infection. They died from secondary pneumonia acquired from bacteria. So we can control that these days. So um, so there's there's that that's, that's very different. So it's it's a bit of a mixture. Um, what we're also seeing today that's very similar to previous pandemics is the rise of conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories will always be with us. There will always be a, a small segment of the population who believe things like NASA and fake the moon landings and so forth. And, and these conspiracy theorists will pop up whenever there's um, a pandemic. And, and here we're seeing conspiracy theories about the coronavirus being a a bioweapon that somehow escaped containment and so forth. So they're common sorts of things. Yeah, I'm seeing that quite a bit, actually, seeing that uh, that emailed constantly, did you know that this was a bioweapon that got away from the Chinese? And my response yeah. is, how do you know? And that usually <laughs> that usually ends the, the, the string of correspondence. Um, in, in your first chapter, What is a Pandemic?, you write about the effects on on the healthcare system. We already have a very stressed healthcare system in this country. We have six million people without a family doctor. You also write about the economic costs. Could you put those together for us, please? Well, um, the big question that's been coming up uh, in the media is, are we prepared? And that's very much a health economics question, but it also depends on, on what we expect will happen. And there's so much uncertainty, it's very difficult to predict whether our healthcare system is prepared but I think what we're not prepared for is the surge of the so-called worried well that will surge into the hospitals, believing that they're infected when in fact they're not. And this has happened in previous pandemics where um, there have been areas of the country where there's been no infection, but people are worried and then they're misinterpreting minor sniffles or coughs or colds and taking themselves to the ER and overwhelming the medical system. So that's a big concern. Thousands of Canadians are already making Sierra Sil their gateway to a return to life of activity and quality. Visit SierraSil.com, where all your Sierra Sil questions will be answered. And remember, online orders of $30 or more include free shipping. That's SierraSil.com. Come back to Dr. Stephen Taylor, the author of The Psychology of Pandemics, Preparing for the Next Global Outbreak of Infectious Disease. Um professor of clinical psychology, Department of Psychiatry at the University of British Columbia. One of the questions I like to ask, Dr. Taylor, because the the titles of books always fascinate me. Why is this book named as it is? So please, what's the core message that you're delivering to the reader in the psychology of pandemics? The core message is when people think about pandemics, they think about as biological events, about bugs that spread. And that's only a small part of the picture. When you think about pandemics, you should think about the importance of psychological and social factors because those factors are highly important in the spreading of disease, the containment of disease, and in the spreading and containment of distress and discrimination. You write about it in the book, but what is the role 
And do the roles overlap at any time, the role of news media and the role of social media? They do overlap. Um, the difference is that social media is uh, um, more of a two-way street. The, the consumers are actually the ones who produce things too, and the consumers play a vital role in disseminating. So they, they are the people who choose to share things or not share things. They create content. So it's a lot more of a, a two-way street, and it's not as regulated as the news media might be. There's no necessity for fact-checking, for example. So it is um, somewhat different. And for those of us who are in conventional media, what's the role that we play in not not creating but um, relating uh, psychological factors of 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 a pandemic? It's a complicated situation. On the one hand, the news media are responding to what people want to read. People don't want to read boring, unexciting news articles. People are are drawn to exciting things. Accordingly, there's that temptation to selectively report the dramatic. Uh, You might have seen the image of the the gentleman in Wuhan who collapsed and died in the street. Yes. Um, That grabbed media attention. And so the media has been criticized for uh, exaggerating the threat, but... um, to some extent, that, that criticism is not quite warranted because uh, it's the public that, that want that. And, of course, the, uh, it's also, to some extent, um, the so-called experts who get on, on the media can exaggerate things as well. So we all play a role in, in this and a role in responsible reporting. Um, but I suppose it's important to report what people can do to make themselves safe and not simply report on disasters or what-if scenarios. You have a, a chapter in, in your book uh, titled, headlined, Improving Risk Communication, and I wish we had the time to pursue that with you in some detail. We have about two minutes left, so if mm-hmm. I can jump right ahead, or unless you want to take that on, uh, the, the, the general conclusions and future directions. Yeah. I'm fascinated. Please go ahead with that. Well, there are whole not really a simple situation. It's, it's tricky. Um, if we think about how can we educate the public and keep people, we, we want some degree of concern, some degree of anxiety is healthy. It's going to motivate people to wash their hands, to not cough all over their friends, and to get vaccinated if a vaccine is around. We want to avoid extremes, extremes of people who aren't anxious at all, or extremes of people who are too anxious. And risk communication is an important role about how we educate people and try and keep their concerns from those either of those two extremes. It's not a simple process. Um, if you put out information too frequently, people get... Um, uh, bored. In, they're bored with it and they tune out. They tune out. And, and then complicating matters is people differ in their personality styles about how they respond to threatening information. Some people are avid consumers of threat information. They want to know what the threat is so they can find out what they can do to keep themselves safe. Other people in comparison just don't want to know. Well, they just want to tune that out. So if we have a risk communication message, okay, you've got to go and wash your hands. You don't need a face mask. The people who like to consume that information will eat that up and and hopefully do what people recommend whereas the people who tune it out aren't aren't going to bother looking at that so 
risk communication is a really challenging area. The other really big important area is uh, vaccination adherence. If we have a, vaccinate, a vaccine for the, the new coronavirus, the big concern is that perhaps a third or more people won't bother to get vaccinated. And so there's an, a huge importance, uh, important issue to address. And it can be addressed in a bunch of ways. One is to rebut some of the conspiracy theories around vaccines, and that's what people have been trying to do, mm-hmm. and also to find ways of encouraging people to get vaccinated. I think one right. important... Dr. Uh, Taylor, I, I apologize. I'm going to have to stop because okay. of time. But I really appreciate you joining us today. And uh, it's just, to me, it's fascinating and mm-hmm. a very important read, The Psychology of Pandemics. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks so much, Roy. Dr. Stephen Taylor from UBC, The Psychology of Pandemics. Mike Smith, Vancouver Province, uh, reporter, columnist, political reporter, columnist, and talk show host at CKNW Radio in Vancouver. Mike, thank you very much uh, for the time. And before I ask you about TMX and response in BC, would you tell us about the indigenous protests against the coastal gas link pipeline by the hereditary chiefs of the First Nations who insist pipelines of any kind may not be constructed through their traditional territory without the chief's agreement? Yeah, that's right, right. There's actually two big pipeline fights going on here in British Columbia. So we got the Trans Mountain Pipeline, as you mentioned, and then there's this natural gas pipeline in northern British Columbia, the Coastal Gas Link. And that's an interesting project. It's $6.6 billion, and it would pump natural gas to the B.C. coast through a, uh, an export terminal that's being built there called the, uh, the uh, LNG Canada Project. That is a $40 billion LNG liquefied natural gas export project. It's the biggest project in Canadian history. And the intriguing thing about it is you often hear about First Nations protests and opposition to projects like this. But in this particular pipeline, every single First Nation along that pipeline route supports it through their elected band councils and have signed benefit sharing agreements with the company. Now, there is a minority of First Nations leaders who oppose the project, notably, as you mentioned, the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation, who have constructed a blockade in a remote access road in northern B.C. to stop construction workers from going in there. What we've seen in the last few days is the RCMP move in and begin to arrest and remove some of those protesters as they enforce an injunction that the company secured through the courts. So, so far, no violence up there. We have seen peaceful protesters arrested, but it it could get nastier because we have had some uh, ugly incidents in the past. But I think the thing that's important for people to remember is the majority, I I think a very clear majority of Indigenous people impacted by that project actually support it. And the First Nations chiefs who are are opposing it seem to get more of the attention, though. So, Mike, uh, let's move to TMX. And, sure. and after the federal appeals court ruling, and as the project moves forward, what might we expect from all who object to TMX, and what might we expect from the B.C. government, which has never been in love with that project? Yeah, the B.C. government is still opposed to the Trans Mountain Pipeline project, but the, the win that the, the project secured in the federal court of appeal this week, I think, is crucial. That is a groundbreaking ruling in favor of the pipeline. 
uh, went against the First Nations who were opposing it, and the bottom line was the courts ruled in a unanimous decision that you can't just have one single First Nations band or a, a group of individual First Nations leaders ha- wield a veto over a project that is clearly in the public interest, like this one is, according to the courts. And that ruling is reinforced, especially when you have, again, a majority of First Nations impacted supporting the project, which is the case with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So the B.C. government remains opposed to it, but there's nothing they can do about it now. I think they've, they've folded their hands and have admitted they can't stop it. The environmentalists, who and this is ground, B.C. is ground zero for the environmental movement, they remain opposed to the project because of the risk of an oil spill. Even though they've suffered this big setback in court, they say they're not going to stop fighting this pipeline. And you may see civil disobedience in the days ahead. If you get protesters who say they're going to lie down in front of bulldozers or try to block work crews, that could happen and you could see arrests. I remember many years ago covering the Clackwood Sound anti-logging blockades on Vancouver Island in the 1990s, and they arrested 900 people and took them away in paddy paddy wagons. It was the biggest biggest, uh, civil disobedience campaign in Canadian history and remains so to this day. So, you know, people people in British Columbia are passionate about the environment, and you, you could see protests like that. And we've also had situations in Ontario where uh, some First Nations peoples have, uh, in, in solidarity with the hereditary chiefs in British Columbia, um, delayed, disturbed, um, postponed rail travel in the province yeah. of Ontario. Uh, yeah, Mike, we're, we, I mean, we're seeing we're seeing road blockades again here today, and there's there's also a protest camp in the last couple of days in the front steps of the BC Legislature. So, you know what though? I think they set back their own cause when they're blocking roads and inconveniencing people because I think that just drives people away from your cause, not converts them to it. Yeah, and people also know, people recognize and understand the economics of these particular projects, the, the multiples of billions of dollars that actually go to help fund social programs and healthcare and other necessary uh, cornerstone aspects of Canadian life. Well, yeah, and I think that's why there's majority support for the projects in B.C. consistently in the polls. But I I think another thing that's becoming more and more clear every day is the degree of Indigenous support for these projects. Most Indigenous people that are impacted by that, by that, the the coastal gasoline pipeline, for example, support the project because right. they're getting a lot of work at it. A lot of Indigenous people are working on on that project. Okay. Mike, I appreciate the time, as always. I was going to ask you about tech. We'll have to do that another time. Thank you for taking the time. Anytime, Roy. Mike Smith, uh, at Mike Smith News on Twitter, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. He's one of the very, very best. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.